I want to recognize one of our sponsors. Have you ever felt like a lone wolf in life, unable to engage in chats around the barbecue since you're doing things that aren't the norm? Enter GoBundance, a place where driven entrepreneurs, CEOs, or investors who are beginning to experience an interesting phenomenon with more success in life, the feeling of a gap forming between ourselves and many of the people around us. One day, we wake up and find ourselves surrounded by people who may no longer see the world the same way we do. As the trend continues, we become more isolated and even find ourselves holding back from talking about things we are most excited about with friends, family, or coworkers. Cobundance was created for those who choose to live bigger and more fulfilled lives of impact. This tribe is for men and women who want to experience world-class adventure, bucketless trips, high-minded conversations, authentic relationships, and an environment to learn and grow with like-minded people. GoBundance is a tribe where you are able to share your successes, struggles, ambitions, and failures without being judged. It's a framework to strengthen your journey in becoming a better man, husband, father, friend, and entrepreneur. It is the place men come together to live epic lives and to grab life big. If you want to learn more, go to GoBundance.com and hit the apply button to join the tribe and tell them the Cashflow Ninja sent you. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast sharing how to create and grow income streams and manage, multiply, and protect your wealth in the new economy. Are you tired of trading your time for money? Do you desire freedom today instead of retirement in 10, 20, or 30 years? I'm MC Lobsher, and this is the Cashflow Ninja. This is Cashflow Ninja. My name is MC Lobsher. Thank you so much for spending the most valuable resource, your time once again with me for another episode of Cashflow Ninja. Everything Cashflow Ninja is at cashflowninja.com. There's over 850 podcast episodes. We have tools, resources, programs. And also, you can grab a copy of my book, The 21 Based Cashflow Niches at cashflowninja.com or on Amazon. When you do, please screenshot a proof of your purchase. Send it to my team at info at cashflowninja.com and we'll give you access to the uh, digital version, the audio version, a curated library of interviews, uh, done with the ninjas discussing the niches and more bonus goodies. Um, also, we've been sending out newsletters. If you've not signed up for our newsletter, I would highly encourage it. We're putting a lot of time and energy in it. I, I'm writing these personally on a weekly basis. You can do so at cashflowninja.com forward slash subscribe. I've got a fantastic guest joining us again on the show, Richard Duncan. Now, Richard Duncan's been a, a previous guest on the show if you're not familiar with Richard and his work, I would highly recommend you go to cashflowninja.com, type in Richard Duncan, listen to the previous episodes that Richard has done onto the show. Just an absolute wealth of knowledge that he shares, uh, brings a, a, a unique perspective um, to the world of investment and our understanding of the world of money. Uh, and also the global financial system. Richard has also got a new book out called The Money Revolution, uh, which is available right now on, on Amazon. Um, would highly encourage folks, if you want to understand 
uh, the global financial system. You want to understand the credit system and what the future looks like. This is a great read, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, this book today on the show and more. Richard Duncan, welcome back to the Cashflow Ninja. MC, thank you for having me back. It's a pleasure talking with you again. Absolutely. So you're in uh, uh, Thailand, in a, in a rural area in Thailand, so it's great that we've got internet connection uh, to be having this conversation. We had our uh, previous conversation in 2020, around uh, June. So Richard. Um, before we jump into things that have led up to where we are today, maybe for our new listeners, we've got a, a we've got a big new group of, of listeners around the world. For folks not familiar with you and what you do, can you please just share a little bit about yourself uh, and, and what you do? Okay, so um, I'm an American. I grew up in Kentucky, went to Vanderbilt, and then had a real lucky break and got to backpack around the world for a year after college. I saw Asia in early 1984 and realized it was booming. So after a couple of years in business school back in Boston, I uh, moved to Hong Kong and found a job as a securities analyst in Hong Kong, covering all the listed, many of the companies listed on the Hong Kong stock market. And I've spent most of my career in Asia, moving around between Hong Kong and Singapore and Thailand a few times each, working for stockbroking companies as an analyst or also as an analyst on the buy side. Um, I spent a couple of years in Washington, D.C., following the Asia crisis, working for the World Bank. And at one point in 2006 and 7, I was the global head of investment strategy for ABN AMRO Asset Management, based in London, looking at all asset classes globally. And along the way, I've written four books, including the new one, The Money Revolution, how to finance the next American century. And my business now is called MacroWatch. I make a video newsletter that I sell on a subscription basis. Um, every couple of weeks, I upload a new video of me discussing something important happening in the global economy. That's called MacroWatch. And I would highly recommend that for listeners too, if they're interested in getting the latest macro trends and an update on that. Um, it's extremely valuable as well. Uh, now, our previous conversation was June of 2020. What are some of the things that you've seen play out since then? Because it was very uncertain then. Um, and where are we today? And what does is, what is, what is the future look like? Okay, so so much has happened since June 2020. <laughs> COVID really hit the U.S. starting in February, and the stock market was in complete freefall in March of 2020. I got down 35%, as I recall. And then I think around March 23rd, the Fed basically announced they were going to create as much money as necessary to um, ensure that the economy didn't collapse. And so that's what they did. The, the US government started borrowing on a truly extraordinary scale. Up until that point, the largest budget deficit for a full year had been $1.4 trillion in 2009. Well, in April of 2020, the government borrowed that much money in one month. And during that second quarter of 2020, the government borrowed $2.8 trillion in just, uh, just three months. And the Fed effectively created enough, printed, created enough new money to finance roughly 70% of that 
money that the government borrowed through quantitative easing. So that, that worked. Uh, that was just the first round of the stimulus from the government and from the Fed. Uh, but as soon as the Fed came out and announced that it was effectively going to create as much money as it took to reflate the economy, the stock market immediately rebound. And by August, it was hitting new highs in, in 2020. And of course, at, last year, it went up to much higher levels than that, record high levels. So we, we got the three big rounds of stimulus from the government. The first one was in March 2020. The second one was in December 2020. The third came in uh, March 2021. And all along the way, the Fed was creating $120 billion every month and pumping it into the economy by buying government bonds and mortgage-backed securities. And so this extraordinarily aggressive fiscal and monetary response uh, succeeded in preventing the economy from collapsing into a depression. Um, now the unemployment rate, which peaked at 14.8%, is down to 3.5%. More or less anyone who wants a job has one. Uh, and you could, and the economy is, uh, is larger than it was before the crisis, meaningfully larger. So the policy response was very successful. Of course, many people think they overdid it because on the other hand, we have the highest rates of inflation now that we've had in 40 years. Now that was, it is probably true. In retrospect, the, the government probably did send out too many stimulus checks and the Fed maybe did create too much money. But when they were doing that, they didn't know how things were going to turn out. If they had not responded so aggressively, we truly could have collapsed into a Great Depression. With the, with the banking system collapsing, unemployment going up to 25% as it did during the Great Depression, and the bottom just completely dropping out with extreme deflation. So looking back on it, in my opinion at least, the, the government made the right decision, given the, the knowledge it had then, is better to make the economy, the economy too hot than allow it to collapse. And not all of the, I mean, only some of the inflation can be blamed on the government stimulus, because of course we have global supply chain bottlenecks that are, have resulted from, from COVID. I want to recognize one of our sponsors. Recently, I had a very engaging and exciting podcast conversation that is one of the most downloaded episodes of this year with my friend, Louis O'Connor. The subject was owning rare earth metals as tangible assets. It's the same paradigm as owning gold or silver, but instead you own industrial grade, high quality rare earth metals that you are purchasing from a premier industry supplier. And the exit for the investor is also guaranteed. One of the most interesting things about this asset clause is that rare earths outperform the stock market and precious metals for the past five years. Unfortunately, there is only a limited amount available to private investors. If you would like to find out more about this exciting and limited opportunity, then please go directly to the website www.strategicmetalsinvest.com or email them at info at strategicmetalsinvest.com. And they've gone on so much longer than 
everyone anticipated back in 2020. You could see that this was probably going to be a problem in 2020, but everyone hoped and believed that COVID would go away sometime that year or early the next year. But we just kept getting round after round of COVID. Uh, just as things started to look like they were improving, then we got hit by Delta. And Delta spread around Asia, much did more, more damage than the first round did. And then once Delta disappeared, uh, then we got Omicron. And now Omicron is spreading like wildfire through China. And China's shutting down Shanghai for the last month. They're starting to shut down Beijing now. So it's continuing to disrupt supply chain bottlenecks around the world, and that's pushing up inflation. And just at the point when we probably would have seen the inflation rate start to drop uh, in the second quarter of this year, Russia decides to invade Ukraine. And of course, that's extremely inflationary. It's caused oil prices to spike to very high levels and also food prices because of course, Ukraine produces a lot of wheat and also Russia does as well, various metals and other types of commodities. So we're getting another big blow to this global supply chain because of this war. Uh, and, um, and it's uncertain how either of these factors, the continuing spread of COVID or the war in Russia, it's uncertain how they're going to play out. Hopefully we're done with COVID, but that's what we said the last time we spoke. But uh, if we are, that will be a great thing and the supply chain bottlenecks will be worked out and the inflationary pressures will abate. Hopefully, the war in Russia will end some, and the Ukraine will end soon. And similarly, the inflationary pressures will abate. But um, this is a very big problem for us now because everything that has really the entire economy and the stock market and all of the wealth in the United States for the last several decades has been built on lower and lower and lower interest rates which were possible because we had extremely low inflation rates. And we had very low inflation rates because we had globalization. And globalization was extremely deflationary because suddenly we could hire workers in Vietnam for $5 a day or Bangladesh for less than that. So this put extreme downward pressure on prices in the US and that kept the interest rates at rock bottom levels. And that let the government effectively spend as much money as it wanted and the Fed to create it as much money as it wanted, for instance, after the crisis of 2008, without leading to high rates of inflation. But now COVID and the war in Ukraine have dealt extreme blows to globalization. Globalization is suffering a severe setback. And if globalization breaks down, we are going to have much or even reverses, even if it's temporary as it, as it may be at the moment, Hopefully this proves to be temporary, but it, as long as globalization is disrupted, then we're going to be in a position where we have inflation. And if we have inflation, then we're going to have higher interest rates. And if we have higher interest rates, it's going to throw the US, into a, the US economy into recession. And it's going to cause a, a big destruction of wealth as stock prices continue to plummet and home prices start to fall and all the other asset classes particularly the high risk asset classes, the most speculative ones, the assets that appreciated the most last year, they're going to depreciate the most this year, as long as interest rates keep moving higher. 
And it looks like interest rates will keep moving higher because the Fed intends to keep hiking. And moreover, the Fed intends to reverse quantitative easing starting this month or next month, or May, or May or June, through quantitative tightening. They're going to start destroying massive amounts of dollars every month instead of creating them as they were doing before. So we're, we're in a difficult situation in terms of the, the outlook for the economy and for the financial markets. It's interesting uh, to note uh, your comment too on globalization because uh, we've seen uh, people like Larry Fink from BlackRock come out and say that this essentially between COVID and uh, between the war in the, in the Ukraine, between Russia and the Ukraine, um, it's the end of globalization. So it's interesting your, your take on that too, because they have come out, this has probably happened in the past two weeks or so, where this is a kind of a, in the news, these comments of them. Well, I certainly hope it's not the end. And I, I don't think it is the end. I think globalization will recover. But I was really lucky in being able to uh, work in Hong Kong starting in 1986. I was 25 years old then. And I could see that uh, you know, just across the border, the factories were full of 19-year-old women making $3 a day. Yep. And these factories stretched as far as the eye could see. And clearly, this was going to be extremely deflationary. Anyone, could, anyone who saw that would have immediately recognized that. Yep. It was also going to put downward pressure on U.S. wages and probably lead to increasing social unrest in the U.S. as it hollowed out the middle class. And that, in fact, is what has happened. That's been the downside of globalization. But the upside has been it has um, pulled hundreds of millions of people around the world out of poverty in places like China, across the border from Hong Kong, and Vietnam, and all around the world. And it's also created unprecedented wealth around the world uh, in the United States and everywhere else. So I, I hope globalization persists. It's been, I would say, probably the most important theme running through my career in terms of having seen it earlier and understanding the impact that it's had on the world and on the financial markets and the global economy. I think it will recover, but you know, that, that's just my opinion. Hopefully this war in Ukraine will end, but if there's a possibility it could spread to other countries and become much worse. And in that case, that could put an end um, forever, or at least for us, forever, our lifetime, the globalization. And that would create an entirely different economic environment and an entirely less pleasant environment for investors uh, because asset prices that we are enjoying at the moment uh, will plunge if we have significantly higher interest rates, which we would if we have higher inflation, which we will if globalization continues to deteriorate as it's doing at the moment. Uh, staying just on the topic quick of uh, the econ global economic environment, uh, what is your uh, insights and just your perspective on um, the, uh, the massive uh, sanctions that, that has been imposed on Russia and the impact of that? Because we've seen, of course, um, you know, ma ma drastic steps by the, the administration in, in, in Washington and also uh, by European countries uh, in, in enforcing these sanctions on Russia. And it seems to have 
significant consequences already, sort of breaking the world in, up into two camps, uh, the Western and the Eastern side, you know, with regards to Russia being banned from the SWIFT bank, uh, the SWIFT system, for example. Um, they had uh, foreign reserves frozen, essentially, and, and, and seized. Uh, and more, and it looks like it's forcing now the hand of other countries that want to continue to do business with Russia to do it in rubles and do it through a separate system. Your take on that. I want to take a moment to recognize one of our sponsors. One of the best cash flow niches might surprise you. It's the cash flow machine called Resort Hospitality. Our friends and partners, Melanie and Josh McCallan from Accountable Equity, are so prolific at creating cash flow for their investors that I had to include them twice in my book, The 21 Best Cash Flow Niches. Something that really impresses me about this dynamic group is that more than just creating cash flow with these historic trophy resort properties, they are also creating a powerful investor community with an accountable equity. Investors not only get to enjoy cash flow from beautiful resorts, but can enjoy the resorts and attend Learn and Grow Investor Summits, where like-minded accredited investors gather to learn from keynote speakers, as well as get updates on their projects and meet the growing team that makes all of this possible. You can learn more how the asset class of resort hospitality is a great way to diversify your multifamily investments by downloading the ebook the 10 steps to build wealth with resort hospitality assets at accountableequity.com. Clearly, it's very bad for the global economy. The, the IMF has just downgraded its forecast for global economic growth this year. And the, even their downgraded forecasts are probably significantly too optimistic in light of what's happening. Um, we Europe is going to be hit very hard because energy prices are just you know, entirely through the roof there. Uh, there's, and they're so dependent on Russian oil and gas as they try to obtain oil and gas from other sources, it's going to cost them more. And so they're very likely to go into recession in many of the European countries. And of course, Russia's economy, which is really about the size of Texas economy, but it's probably going to contract by at least 10% this year, if not more. The, one of the big dangers is if China becomes increasingly helpful to Russia, and if the U.S. then decides to apply greater sanctions on to Chinese goods, that would make the inflationary pressures even worse. So that's something else to worry about. China's economy itself is already having difficulties in that their property bubble is deflating in a controlled manner, uh, but where in the past that was a major driver of China's economic growth, and now it's a big drag in the other direction. And suddenly, just over the last couple of months, uh, COVID, Omicron has just escaped. They controlled the first wave of COVID and they controlled Delta, but once Omicron got into Hong Kong, it spread like wildfire. There's 7 million people in Hong Kong. The last, a week ago or two, I read a million people had already tested positive in Hong Kong. So how can you control this? It's like the wind. Uh, and now it's into China. 
And if they continue to lock down more and more Chinese cities, then fewer and fewer Chinese goods are going to make it to the United States. And that's going to cause even more upward pressure on prices in the US. So that's another uh, global concern. So the sanctions essentially is pouring fuel onto the fires that are already existing um, between COVID, <laughs> between the supply chain uh, disruptions uh, and so forth. And now this type of economic warfare um, that that has been launched, I mean, essentially, in the end, it's very tough to see anybody winning, right? It looks like everybody's going to get hurt around the world because of this. It does. And and especially the people in the poorer countries, um, Sri Lanka, for example, there are already food riots. And after the crisis of 2008, there was a very aggressive policy response then, trillion dollar budget deficits in the US, three big rounds of quantitative easing. At that point, everyone was afraid that there would be very high rates of inflation. Well, as it turned out there at that time, inflation didn't go very high at the consumer price level in the US. It peaked at just 3.8% in the US in 2011, which was not very high considering how aggressive the Fed was in printing money and, and how much the government was borrowing and spending. But where we did see the inflation then was in food price inflation in 2011 and uh, for parts of 2010, parts of 2012. And that led to severe uh, social problems around the world. People went hungry. And that was the cause of the Arab Spring in North Africa, spread across most of North Africa and through parts of the Middle East. So it was, uh, it was food price inflation that uh, created really hunger. And we're now looking at another situation similar to that and potentially even worse. Food prices, wheat prices have gone up to such high levels that uh, many of these developing countries, uh, people are not going to be able to eat as well as they did in the past. And if it becomes worse, and it may, this could lead to more social revolutions, but perhaps more governments will be toppled. It could be a replay of the Arab Spring. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And I believe it was Henry Kissinger that said, if you can control, if you want to control nations or countries, you control oil. If you want to control the people, you control food. And it looks like, uh, you know, with these massive food prices, we've already started to see revolutions and governments being toppled. And as you mentioned, this is just the beginning of all of this. Um, so there's a lot of things happening that is extremely interesting. So we don't live in boring times, Richard, do we? No, not at all. Fortunately <laughs> for the United States, uh, it, it now is able to produce a great deal of oil on its own. And of course, more than enough food to feed itself. But uh, other countries are not as fortunate. Yeah. Well, let's jump into uh, the book a little bit. Very excited to... Uh, to talk about the money revolution, how to finance the next American century. What was your uh, thinking behind it? What inspired uh, the new book? So I worked on this book, MC, for four years. It wouldn't have been so long, except about the time it was very close to being finished, COVID struck. And that required a big rethink, uh, at least a rewrite of a number of chapters. Um, but it's, the book has three parts. 
The first two parts are history. Part one is a history of money over the last century, since the Fed was created in, 20, in 1913. And the part two is the history of credit and the proliferation of credit over the last 100 years and how that's changed the way our economic system works. And then part three draws on the, the lessons that can be derived from that history to make recommendations about what we can do, learning from the past to make the future better. So that's, uh, as you know, I've written this, I've written three other books. The first one was called The Dollar Crisis. It came out um, 19 years ago. And so this is, I've, I've always been focused on um, the macroeconomy and the global imbalances in the global economy that have led to the, the economic crises like 2008. Um, the last book before the, the current one was came out 10 years ago. So this is the first book in, in 10 years. And it, the first part is a history of the Federal Reserve, the history of the Fed. The Fed is the world's most powerful economic institution. If it were a corporation, it would be the most profitable corporation in the world. It is the US government's most powerful policy tool. And it's what the Fed does by creating or destroying money determines whether asset prices go up or whether asset prices go down. So it's extremely important if you really want to understand what's happening with our economy and what's likely to happen next, you need to understand how the Fed works. So part one of the book explains uh, exactly how the Fed works. Uh, and it does this in a unique way. Uh, it's a history of the Fed, but it's told in a unique way. It analyzes changes in the Fed's assets over 10 consecutive periods. Uh, changes on the liability side of the Fed's assets show exactly how the Fed creates money. And changes on the asset side show exactly what the Fed does with the money that it creates. So by tracing the changes in the Fed's liabilities and assets, it tells you the history of the Fed very precisely. I don't go into a lot of detail about this Fed governor said this in 1921, or they moved interest rates up to this level in 1965. I only analyze the change in the Fed's balance sheet items, and that tells the history very clearly. And so once you uh, have that history, th then you understand the policy tools that the Fed can work with. And once you understand that, then it gives you a very good idea on what they may do next. And so that's part one. I, I, a very precise history of the Federal Reserve over the last 108 years since it was created. I want to take a moment to recognize one of our sponsors. My friend Dave Zook says, you can be conventional or you can be wealthy. Pick one. At The Real Asset Investor, Dave and his team bring their investors high-yield investment opportunities across several asset classes for cash flow, tax impact, and equity growth. He and his team are one of the top five ATM operators in the country, and they have an investment opportunity available to accredited investors right now in the ATM space. 
To learn more about their ATM funds that produce tax-free cash flow, visit therealassetinvestor.com. And then part two is a history of credit, also more or less over the last 100 years. Um, and here, the really significant thing, well, it's related to the Fed because the most significant development in the Fed's history really was it occurred in 1968. That year, the Fed no longer had enough gold to back the money that it created. Up until 1968, there was a law that the Fed had to own gold to back every additional dollar that it created. And it did that from 1914 up until 1968. But in 1968, the Fed didn't have enough gold to continue doing that, which would have meant they couldn't have created any more dollars. And so the Congress changed the law and removed the requirement for the Fed to, the Fed no longer had to hold any gold whatsoever to back the money that it created. And this changed uh, everything in a number of really crucial ways. First and most obviously, of course, afterwards, the, the Fed was free to create as much money as it wanted. Uh, next, this allowed the US government to run larger budget deficits because the Fed would print money and buy the government bonds and help finance the budget deficits. Now, normally that combination would have led to very high rates of inflation. And in fact, it did in the 1960s and the 1970s. But something else resulted from this end of uh, gold-backed money. When the US stopped backing dollars with gold, it suddenly discovered that it could start buying a lot of things from other countries and it didn't have to pay with gold anymore. It could pay for them with paper dollars or treasury bonds. And so the US trade deficit began to skyrocket. Now, that wasn't it wasn't possible for the US to run very large trade deficits when dollars were backed by gold because if the, if the US had a big trade deficit, they would have had to ship their gold to other countries to pay for the deficit. And our gold supply would have shrunk quickly to nothing, and the economy would have gone into crisis, and we would have stopped buying things from other countries. But once we didn't have to pay with gold anymore, we could just pay with paper dollars or treasury bonds. This enabled the US to start running massive trade deficits with low-wage countries. So by 2006, the US trade deficit was $800 billion that year. And by buying things from low-wage countries, that drove down the inflation rate. It was extremely deflationary. And so the government could get away with running huge budget deficits. The Fed could help finance those huge budget deficits by creating money and buying government bonds. And neither of those things led to high rates of inflation because globalization was so deflationary. That all resulted from the Fed no longer having to hold gold to back the dollars that it issued from 1968. Afterwards, this takes us into part two, credit absolutely exploded. Total credit in the US first went through $1 trillion in 1964. By 2007, just before the crisis occurred, credit had expanded more than 50 times to $53 trillion. So a 53-fold increase in just 43 years. And now total credit is uh, almost $90 trillion. So we've gone from $1 trillion of total credit in 1964, when I was three, 
to almost $90 trillion of credit now. And um, this, what I mean by total credit, total credit and total debt are two sides of the same coin. So you can think of this as all the debt in the country, government debt, household sector debt, corporate debt, financial sector debt, all the debt. So it's all the debt that has climbed from 1 trillion in 64 to $90 trillion now. And this explosion of credit or explosion of debt has completely uh, transformed our economy. Uh, I say that it has caused capitalism to evolve into a different kind of economic system that I call creditism. I always refer to credit because it, it, it's useful in coining the term creditism. Debt and debtism don't sound quite as good. But capitalism was an economic system driven by saving and investment. Businessmen would invest, some of them would make a profit. They would save that profit, or in other words, accumulate capital, hence capitalism, and repeat. It was pretty slow and difficult, but that's the way capitalism worked. But our system doesn't work like that anymore. Now our economic system is driven by credit creation and consumption, and more credit creation and more consumption. And that has been a lot easier and a lot faster. But the problem with creditism, it has an Achilles heel. It must have credit growth to survive. If credit grows by less than 2%, the US goes into recession. And if it contracts, it goes into a depression. And so the government has to manage the economy at the macro level to ensure that credit continues to expand so that we don't have a depression. And that's what they did after 2008 with four years of trillion dollar budget deficits. And that's what they've done over the last two years uh, because of COVID. Um, they have had budget deficits of roughly $5 trillion over the last two years to keep credit expanding. Um, and the Fed has financed that about 75% of that by creating something approaching four and a half trillion dollars over the last two years. So, um, Part two describes this explosion of credit, uh, credit from the banking system, credit from the broader financial system, including Fannie Mae and the issuers of asset-backed securities, and also credit that's been pumped into the United States by foreign central banks. Uh, foreign central banks also have played a very important role in pumping, creating money and pumping it into the, into the United States. It's a lot like quantitative easing. Uh, with quantitative easing, of course, the Fed just creates dollars and buys government bonds. And that pushes up the price of government bonds and pushes down the yields, or in other words, pushing down interest rates. When foreign central banks, like the People's Bank of China, when they do it, it's exactly the same thing, except it just involves one more step. The PBOC first creates its own currency, yuan. It then uses this newly created yuan to buy dollars that are coming into China. It does this to prevent those dollars from pushing up the exchange rate in China and killing China's export-led growth. So they print yuan, buy dollars, and once they have the dollars, then they buy treasury bonds. It's just like quantitative easing. And they did this on a very large scale. In fact, foreign central banks bought up much more of the US government's debt in the years leading up to 2007 than the Fed did. So there's a chapter on that. Um, and there's even a Q&A between me and former Fed Chairman 
uh, Alan Greenspan. I had the chance in early 2017 to ask him about this. And the transcript of that Q&A is, is in uh, chapter uh, 11, I think. Or, but uh, so it describes how this explosion of credit impacted the US economy, how the US economy became dependent on credit growth. And then there's a chapter on what happened when the crisis of 2008 occurred and the policy response to that crisis. Uh, it describes what happened in the years after that crisis began to simmer down. And the final chapter in part two is on inflation. It shows what happened with US inflation on a decade by decade basis, starting from the 1920s to the present. It compares money supply growth and inflation in each decade. And it's, it's very interesting because as you were referring to, perhaps before, before you started recording this, but there, Milton Friedman always said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, meaning that if, you, if the Fed, if the central bank creates too much money and the money supply grows too rapidly, it will cause inflation. But as you will see in, in this chapter on inflation, that's, that's not true. That was true um, mostly before dollars stopped being backed by gold and before globalization became so de deflationary. But there are really three main drivers of inflation that we've seen over the last century. Not only the money supply, that's one of the factors that's caused inflation, but there are also inflationary um, supply shocks. There, there are supply shocks and there are demand shocks in addition to changes in the money supply. And there are inflationary supply shocks and deflationary supply shocks. And there are inflationary demand shocks and deflationary demand shocks. So let's look at demand shocks. Uh, an inflationary uh, demand shock, you could say, has occurred because of the stimulus checks being sent out to the American public. That has created more purchasing power and pushed up inflation. A deflationary demand shock would have been the COVID lockdowns before when people were just forced to stay home and so demand shrank. And then there are inflationary supply shocks like the, uh, the oil shock of the 1970s. Uh, that was a inflationary supply shock, but there are also deflationary supply shocks like globalization. That's an extremely deflationary supply shock. Supply, we no longer have a closed domestic US economy with 300 million people we have a global economy with a work with 8 billion people. And so what is very clear, at least up until two years ago, is that globalization had become the most important factor among all of these factors, determining the price level. It was so deflationary, it trumped everything else and it pushed down, it pushed down prices. So for example, in 2009, uh, but let me compare this with World War II, which was an extreme period. In World War II, money supply growth and during the war peaked at about 30%. And when the, 
there were price controls, but when the price controls came off, inflation went up to about 25%. So money supply growth of 30%, you could say that resulted in or contributed to inflation of 25%. Compare that to a period where we had globalization in full swing in 2009. In 2009, the money supply grew by 110%, roughly four times as much as the peak of World War II. But the inflation rate only peaked at 4% a couple of years later. So that just shows you how powerful the force of, globaliz of globalization was in terms of pushing down prices. It completely overwhelmed the inflationary pressures that would have normally resulted from aggressive money supply growth and very large budget deficits. So uh, that's the final chapter of part two. Part two uh, before we jump into the, the, the future, the part three, Richard, uh, just a quick question for you too, because um, the flow is, is, is great in the, in the book, uh, just going through the history. And one of the things that I was just um, thinking about too is you talk about the Bretton Woods agreement, the Bretton Woods era, and then of course, uh, when uh, the, the the world after gold, essentially when Richard Nixon took the world off the gold standard in 1971, which a lot of fo uh, folks refer to as Bretton Woods too. Um, there's a lot of talk about a new Bretton Woods agreement needed. <laughs> and this is coming from the IMF, you know, the World Bank, the European Central Banks. Uh, there's some uh, leaders in the, in the United States that have mentioned something to that effect. Um, which also brings up all of the many things that folks have talked about with regards to central bank digital currencies. What's your quick take, you know, on on this discussion perhaps that's going on around a new Bretton Woods agreement, a new global monetary system and or order, and also uh, central bank digital currencies? Okay, well, there there is not going to be any sort of new Bretton Woods system put in place, and if there were, it would be a catastrophe for the global economy and for everyone living on this planet. <laughs> because the Bretton Woods system was just like a gold standard. Uh, it had mechanisms in place that made sure that trade between countries had the balance. So there weren't big trade deficits between countries back then. It was only when trade, the US trade was more or less in balance. Um, well, last year, the US just last year alone, the US trade deficit in goods was $1 trillion. That allowed the rest of the world to sell to the United States $1 trillion more than they would have been able to do otherwise. So the world obtained $1 trillion that way that it would not have obtained otherwise. Um, millions and millions of people have jobs because of that trillion dollar budget trade deficit that the United States has. Uh, that trillion dollars that went out into the global economy just one year alone. Uh, this, you know, and of course, this is just this has been going on since the early 1980s. The cumulative U.S. trade deficit over that time is probably closer to something like 15 trillion dollars. And that money that's come out of the U.S. is has transformed the world. It is why China was able to grow at 10 percent a year. And, and become the second largest economy in the world. It's why Shanghai now looks like the Emerald City and the Wizard of Oz. It has pulled hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. If we went back to some sort of Bretton Woods system, 
or gold system or anything that prevented the U.S. from running a trade deficit, the global economy would immediately go into cardiac arrest and collapse into a Great Depression worse than what we saw in the 1930s. Because if, we had, if the United States had to pay for its trade with gold, it would run out of all its gold in about a month, if not, if not sooner. And at that point, it would not be able to buy one more pair of tennis shoes from China. And China's economy would spiral into a calamitous depression. And uh, millions and millions of people would lose their jobs, tens of millions of people in China alone. It would be so extraordinarily deflationary, prices would fall by 50%. We'd have 50% deflation instead of 8.5% inflation. All the banks would fail. It would just be the end of the world as we know it. So no one really wants that to happen, regardless of what they say. The U.S., the world has been living off the U.S. trade deficit since the early 1980s, and they will be quite happy to continue to do that as long as they can. Gotcha. Um, let's talk about solutions that you provide in the book, too, the future. So you give uh, some, some interesting uh, solutions uh, to where, where we find ourselves right now. Well, so I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that the book was ready to go to print at the end, practically. It was, the book was 95% finished by the, end, by the time COVID started. And what I was seeing then was I was looking at the, the crisis before last, the crisis of 2008, and the lesson seemed starkly clear. The U.S. government had created, um, I think, something like $7 trillion over the seven years starting in 2008. And the Fed had created $3.5 trillion of new money, uh, which caused the size, the Fed's total assets at the end of 2007, uh, $950 billion. By 2014, when the third round of quantitative easing ended, it had risen from nine from $950 billion to $4.5 trillion. So the amount of money the Fed created it, it expanded the Fed's assets by about five times in, in just seven years. And the highest rate of inflation that we got was 3.8% at the CPI level. What the lesson that I derived from that was: look, we're living in a completely different economic environment now, where globalization has opened up the possibility for the government to run very, very large budget deficits and for the Fed to finance these budget deficits by printing money and buying government bonds and holding interest rates at an extremely low level. All of this without leading to high rates of inflation. So it was an open and shut case, uh, What I, my recommendations at that point. And what I recommended is since this is the world we're living in, then this is what we need to do. Over the next 10 years, the U.S. government should fund a multi-trillion dollar investment program targeting the industries and technologies of the future, investing very aggressively in things like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, biotech, nanotech, genetic engineering, neural sciences, uh, renewable energies, and uh, other advanced technologies. And the Fed could create money through quantitative easing and finance this 
entire multi-trillion dollar investment program at low interest rates. And we could get away with this over a 10-year period uh, with very low inflation. Now, then COVID struck. And suddenly, uh, we have, now we have 8.5% inflation, which is very unfortunate for my book on the one hand. But on the other hand, as I also mentioned earlier, the government borrowed $2.8 trillion in one quarter, and the Fed financed 70% of that with money creation. I'm proposing a multi-trillion, that's a bit vague, multi-trillion investment program over a decade. The government borrowed multi-trillion in three months. So it does tend to support my argument that the government could easily finance an investment of this with the, the Fed financing it, creating money and funding it. The only question is, is, is this now possible uh, with the setbacks to globalization? And it's not clear that it is. And if globalization resumes, then what I've advocated in this investment program would once again be possible. We'll be back in a world where globalization is very deflationary, inflation will be low, interest rates will be low, and this investment program could be carried out. Um, on the other hand, that world may be gone forever, in which case uh, my, my recommendations to invest aggressively in the industries of the future may, may not be possible going forward. But even still, um, people who buy the book will have an excellent history of the Federal Reserve and an excellent history of the evolution of credit and the impact that credit has had on our economy uh, over the last century. And they'll be in a much better position to understand what's going to happen next. But uh, do let me expand on, on, on these recommendations to invest aggressively in, in new industries and technologies, because this book covers a span of 120 years. It looks 110 years into the past, going back to the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And it looks 10 years into the future. And it makes projections about uh, how the government could invest over the next 10 years. Now in the book, uh, I've always written, I don't put a specific price tag on exactly how much I'm recommending the government invest. I instead argue that the government should invest as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And if it starts to overheat the economy, leading to high rates of inflation, then they have to pause on the investment for a while until the bottlenecks causing the inflation abate. Uh, and then they can resume the investment. But for the sake of providing an illustration, I use an example of $10 trillion. If the government uh, funded a $10 trillion investment program over 10 years, how that would impact the government's finances and how that would impact the Fed's balance sheet, since um, I'm advocating that the Fed create $10 trillion to finance this entire investment program so that it would cost the American taxpayers nothing whatsoever. So on that, uh, using that assumption, a $10 trillion investment it would have to begin slowly. You, know, you couldn't just invest $1 trillion next year, for instance. People would have to be hired, plans would have to be made. So you'd have to scale up the investment slowly with uh, lower amounts in the first years and then higher amounts in the later years. And to, to make the most conservative assumptions possible, to show that I want to show what the size, right now the US government's 
uh, government debt to GDP, the ratio of government debt to GDP is 130%. The Congressional Budget Office is projecting that 10 years from now, it will be 122%. They're saying it will come down as the economy grows. So that's the official forecast from the Congressional Budget Office. 10 years from now, the government debt will be 122% of GDP. Based on a $10 trillion investment program, and here I assume that every last penny of this investment program is wasted, that not, nothing whatsoever good comes out of it. Under that scenario, where, of course, that's ridiculously pessimistic, but assuming that it's entirely wasted, then the US government's budget deficit would be 150% of GDP 10 years from now, instead of 122%. It would be 150. Right now, Japan's government debt to GDP is 260% of GDP. So 10 years from now, US government debt would essentially be where Japanese government debt was 20 years ago. Japanese government debt was at 150% of Japan's GDP um, 20 years ago in 2002. So that's in a scenario where every last cent of this investment money is entirely wasted. And of course, that's, that's absurd. That sort of investment would create miracles. It would turbocharge US economic growth. It would create technological and breakthroughs that would cause such an increase in productivity that the US economy would probably, it wouldn't be surprising to see it grow at double digits with that sort of investment. And so that would mean that rather than the government debt to GDP increasing, it would be much smaller at the end of this investment program than it is now. And in terms of the Fed financing the, this investment, what I'm saying is just like they should do it like quantitative easing, like they have been doing. They've been, uh, they have created almost $5 trillion over the last two years. So have them create another $10 trillion over the next 10 years and pay for this entire program. That would take their total assets of the Fed up from $9 trillion now, up, that would take it to $19 trillion in 10 years from now. That would put it at about 60% of US GDP. That, the Fed's assets would be 60% of US GDP 10 years from now, assuming that GDP doesn't grow because of this investment program. Well, the ECB's assets to GDP are already 60% now. And the Bank of Japan's total assets are 120% of GDP now. So we would, 10 years from now, in this invest, after the Fed finances this entire investment program, um, the Fed's total assets would be half the level that Japan's are currently relative to the size of Japan's GDP. So it would be very, very easy for the US to fund this sort of investment program. Now, I keep saying fund it, and that's what I mean. I, I'm not proposing the government carry out these investments, but instead, the best approach would probably be for the government to set up joint venture companies with the private sector. In other words, for instance, the government could identify the let's say the 10,000 most promising American entrepreneurs and set up joint venture companies with them. The government funds these joint venture companies lavishly and keeps a 60% equity stake. 
And the scientists and entrepreneurs manage these joint venture companies and they keep a 40% equity stake. And so there are companies, for instance, trying to work on a cancer vaccine or cure for cancer. And with the structure where the government owns 60% and the private sector entrepreneurs and scientists own 40%. When one of these companies makes a major breakthrough, for instance, discovers a cure for cancer, they could list that on NASDAQ for five or $10 trillion with the government keeping 60% of the profits. So this investment program would pay for itself many times over. Uh, and we would end up with just extraordinary breakthroughs. A trillion dollars is an extraordinary amount of money. Um, it would give us a real shot, the kind of investment program I'm describing, it would really give us a shot at curing all the diseases and radically expanding life expectancy, uh, cleaning up the environment and, you know, curing or resolving many of the other most intractable challenges that we face today. All of these issues could be overcome if we invest enough. The problem is the US government has been investing uh, far too little uh, since the 60s. In World War II, of course, the government invested on an extraordinary scale out of necessity to win the war. Yeah. And that, that investment came up with things like jet engines and semiconductors and other uh, technologies that drove the economy at a very high rate for the next couple of decades. Uh, we need to do the same thing again. We need a large scale investment program uh, on a very large scale. And there, and there, if I may, there are, there are three really important reasons why we must do this. First of all, as shown in part two of the book, our economic system, creditism, must have credit growth to stay out of crisis. And this kind of large-scale government borrowing would drive credit growth and make the economy grow. Secondly, and very importantly, we are about to be overtaken by China, technologically, economically, and militarily. In the year 2000, the United States invested eight times as much in R&D as China did. In 2019, China overtook the US. And if current growth rates continue, by the end of this decade, in 2030, China will invest 40% more in R&D than the US will. This would essentially put the United States at China's mercy. This explains why China has 5G and hypersonic missiles and the United States doesn't. It's very simple. China invests more than the United States does. And if the United States doesn't begin investing more than China, then China is going to develop artificial intelligence before the US does. And whoever takes artificial intelligence to the point where AI is more intelligent than humans, then it's going to continue becoming more intelligent exponentially. That country will have the rest of the world at its mercy. And China is going to beat us unless we radically accelerate our pace of investment. That's the second reason, so that we will not um, be a second-rate vulnerable power, no longer in charge of our own destiny, if, which will be the case if we don't radically expand our investment in research and development. But the third reason, and the most compelling reason, is that 
we can do this. I mean, we must do this because it would create extraordinary technological breakthroughs and benefits. And we can so easily afford to do it, as I show in great detail in chapter 19 and 20. It's, an, it's a moral imperative. The benefits would be ex so extraordinary and it would be so easy for us to do this that uh, we must do it. It's a moral imperative. Great stuff, uh, Richard. Where can folks um, learn more about you if you just wanna share your website again? And the book is available on Amazon, The Money Revolution by Richard Duncan. But I recommend it as you uh, have listened uh, to some insights in what Richard says in the book. Uh, great read to, uh, again, give you a look back, as you mentioned, about 110 years back. And then also look at uh, possibilities for the future. Where uh, can folks follow you um, and learn more about MacroWatch? Again, if you just want to share that website. Yeah, so the, the book, the, uh, the Money Revolution, How to Finance the Next American Century, it is available on Amazon and on other websites, but also in good bookstores everywhere. A friend sent me a picture from Barnes & Noble on Fifth Avenue in New York today. It, the book was on display there. So it should also be in bookstores everywhere, I hope. Um, but yes, thank you. MacroWatch is my video newsletter. And they can, if your listeners would like to take a look at MacroWatch, they can find it at richardduncaneconomics.com. That's my website, richardduncaneconomics.com. And as I mentioned, every couple of weeks, I upload a new video, which is a PowerPoint presentation, something just, uh, important happening in the global economy. A recent one was called Fear the Fed, explaining why investors should be afraid of the Fed hiking interest rates and destroying massive amounts of dollars through quantitative tightening. So I would like to offer your listeners uh, a 50% discount if they would like to subscribe to MacroWatch. If they hit the subscribe button, they'll be prompted to put in a coupon code. If they put in a, the coupon code NINJA, they can subscribe at a 50% discount. So I hope they'll check out MacroWatch and at the very least sign up there for my free blog. Fantastic stuff. Richard, thank you so much for coming on the show again and sharing your knowledge and sharing uh, what you have covered in the book, The Money Revolution. And to the listeners listening and watching, thank you so much for spending your most valuable resource, your time once again with me on the show. Everything Cashflow Ninja is at cashflowninja.com. Sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com forward slash subscribe and grab a copy uh, of the 21 best cashflow niches on Amazon or at cashflowninja.com. And when you do, just screenshot a proof of purchase, send it to my team, and we'll give you access to the audio book, the digital book, and then also curated library of interviews done with ninjas talking about the niches and more bonus goodies. Until next time, love infinitely.
This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objectives, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness.